uh, Genesis chapter 1. And um, <clears throat> I've simply called the uh, sermon, In the Beginning, God. So I want to make sure you have your Bibles open at Genesis uh, chapter 1. And uh, we'll pray first, and then uh, that'll be our first statement. So, Father, I thank you for the creation for the earth, the heavens, the universe, the stars, the sun, the moon, the oceans, the atmosphere, all of these things. You just said it, and it happened. And I thank you for that. And I thank you for the creation of uh, mankind. You are our creator, our father. Jesus is our friend, and the Holy Spirit is our comforter. So, Father, help us tonight as we learn all that just from Genesis chapter 1 to really be thrilled by it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, I had a, a number of things that normally I talk about when I'm going to do sort of an exegesis of it, and it's going to be this time different than the last time because of Michael. I said this during the last sermon, but uh, because of all that we have learned, and if you don't know, uh, five weeks before this, uh, we had Michael Hale teaching us about evolution versus creation in the most amazing way, and it's all available on YouTube. And so uh, I urge you to watch it if you haven't. And uh, I tell people all the time, I didn't understand most of it, but I understood all of it. And then what I mean by that is I didn't need to understand the things that Michael was able to tell us from a scientific point of view with his tremendous background just thrilled me as I thought about how God has made us and uh, how fortunate we are uh, to be, have been created, to have been born, and to know for sure, I think all of us here tonight, I hope that's true, uh, to know for sure that we're going to spend eternity with the creator of the universe. And uh, <clears throat> I'm told when I get older, I'll think more about what it's really like after you die, <laughs> but I already do that, and I think... You know, if he made all of this, from what I read about the new heavens and the new earth and all that, that's even better. And so I, I'm looking forward to it. So in the, it starts this way. Let's go right through it. In the beginning, God. And we need to just stop there. God. Genesis is about God and is our introduction to God. And the word for God, for instance here is used 35 times just in the first chapter of Genesis. I said it last time, last week, that the attributes of God or the character uh, of God is the single most important thing we must understand if our lives are going to be lived in obedience to God. So the first question then you want to ask is, who is God? Well, he's the creator of everything, including us. Therefore, knowing him must be our most important goal in life, and obeying him will guarantee our joy and peace now and forever. So the next word is the word created. And using uh, simple English, God made out of nothing everything. There's different ways to prove that scripturally, and that's the only way I really care about it. I believe the Bible's absolutely true, and there's nothing wrong. It doesn't tell us a wrong thing anywhere in the whole Bible. So we'll go to John chapter 1, the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it'll put it on the screen, and we'll take a look at this creation out of nothing. John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. 
it's obviously based upon Genesis chapter 1 because it starts in the same way. So the Apostle John writes, in the beginning was the Word. Now, most of you already know that the word for word in Greek is logos. That's the word for word, logos. And I say, every time I teach it, and I've never had any reason to change, uh, that the word here, logos, really means, the, the real meaning behind it is it, it's, it's what life is all about. The Logos, that's what life is all about. It's the meaning of life. So in the beginning, and I'm going to add some words because of the grammar here. In the beginning, before anything else was, the word was. I know that's not good English grammar, but that's exactly what it means. And the word that was in the beginning was with God. So the word isn't God then. So the word was with God. So and and the word was God. Oh, his word is God. No, no, I'm confused. Okay, let me do it again. In the beginning was the word, the logos, and the word was with God. And at the same time, the word was also God. And the word it says he was with God. He. So the word has personhood behind it somehow. He was with God, that's in the beginning, God, God, in the beginning. And through him, the word, all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. Now, I know you already know the answer, but so who, who's the word? John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh. That's the incarnation. God so loved the world that he sent the word Jesus, the Word became flesh, became a human being, and made His dwelling among us, or a great way to, to put it together for, to show the real meaning of it. He pitched His tent among us. He wasn't here to stay in that form of a human being. He was here to go to the cross. And so the Word became flesh, a human being, and made His dwelling among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from God, the Father. So we have God the Father, we have God the Son, and He is full of grace and truth. Now, that's important. We'll still say a little bit more about that in a minute. But in the beginning, God, the next word, is created. Created. The heavens and the earth. Now, the earth that He created was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God, uh, by the way, God is Elohim, and it's a plural word. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing with that here. So the Spirit of God, who is also God, was hovering over the waters, hovering over the waters. Now, I want to dig into this a little more, just a further reminder from last week. In John chapter 17, we have the prayer of Jesus just before he goes uh, to the cross. And he's praying to the Father. So the Logos, the Son, is praying to the Father, Elohim. And he says in John chapter 17, verse 5 and verse 24, And now, Father, God, glorify me in your presence with the glory I, the Logos, the Son, had with you before the world 
began. That's why I played with the grammar in English a little bit. So even before God created anything, the Father and the Son were there. And then he goes on to say in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me, those you have given me, those, that's those of us who are saved, who have been saved by the cross, by the blood of Jesus. So uh, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me, here it is again, before the creation of the world. So God loved, uh, God uh, created, uh, God had relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And then we go to verse 3 here. And God said, let there be light, and there was light, just like that. Now, we see this creation story reflected all through the Hebrew Scriptures and the Greek Scriptures both. Old and New Testaments. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says this. In him, that's the word, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind, the meaning of life. Jesus, the Logos, the meaning of life. And he was, he, you could say, it doesn't do too much harm here to it, he turned on the light of salvation in our lives. And now we are the light of the world. And we're to go out and help other people see in the darkness they're in the light that we represent so they too can be saved. And then it says in verse 4 of Genesis 1, God saw that the light was good. God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. Verse 5, God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Now, uh, one of the things that I used to do, I used to talk about the gap theory and the, the age day theory, all of this kind of stuff, and some of you hopefully don't even know what that is. Uh, there's a question, is this a 24-hour day or not? That's the question. Well, it's a 24-hour day, uh, and you might want to say, uh, well, prove it. Well, here's how I'll prove it. It proves it for me, at least. I don't know about you, but I heard a scholar, his name is Alan, that's his last name, uh, use this illustration. Now, Alan is a commentator, a great commentator of Genesis, as a matter of fact, and he also, he's a doctor of theology, and he's, a, he's Jewish, and he's obviously, or not obviously, but he is a first language uh, Hebrew speaker. And he speaks, he, of course, he speaks English. He, he, went, he, became, he got his doctorate degree in America, and he's still in America. And so he said this. He said, if you were to take the Genesis account of creation and have somebody that knows nothing about any religion, about Christianity, or about the Bible at all, if you were to just take it to somebody that was, was absolutely first language speaker of, uh, of Hebrew and ask them just to read the story, they'd never read it before, don't know anything about it, they don't have any ideas about it, they just read the story and then just ask them one question. Ask them one question. According to that story that I just got you to read, 
Uh, what does the word, he was using Hebrew when he said this, I can't do that. What was the word, what does the word day mean? And the person, Dr. Allen said, would say, it means day. Right. How many hours in a day? 24. Okay. So that's what you say, that's what the story's saying. Well, sure it is. I just read it. That's what it says. And there's no reason to not believe it. Now, we used to have a young pastor here before he moved to Louisiana, uh, Sean. And I, the first time I ever heard anybody say this, and now I hear it in our church all the time. He sort of instigated it. Uh, he just stopped. He was teaching in Genesis one time, and he, he just stopped, and he said, I've never understood these days of creation. Why did God take so long? Six days it took him. Why didn't he just, boom, do the whole thing? You see, that's the, it's so, he's God. And the more we learn about the creation and the universe and everything, the more amazing it is. Uh, the day-age people are people that think that each day is a long period of time. If that kind of thinking, it would have to be a really long period of time, like maybe a trillion years or something. Uh, to build everything that we're learning about, just about the universe. But he says here, uh, verse 5, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So God's commands cause the conditions commanded to become perfect for plant and animal and human life that were to come onto the earth surrounded by the spectacular universe God created out of nothing. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, the writer of Hebrews says, By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, the universe, so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, last week, we talked about the symmetry of God's creation. I believe this is very, very important. God is organized, oh, more than organized. God has a plan that can be discerned. We are to be a goal-directed people who have plans and live our lives with order and purpose according to the will of God, which he has made known to us. Now look at verse 6. And God said, let there be a vault. I do not like that translation. That's the NIV, the updated one. <clears throat> Better word is expanse. The word in Hebrew is raquia. Now, if you, if you know Hebrew, you're sh shaking your head and saying, well, it doesn't sound anything like that. I know, but it's, that's the way it's transliterated, R-A-Q-I-A, Rakia. It simply means a space or an expanse. So I'm going to use the word expanse or space rather than vault. Vault sounds like something in a bank to me. So verse 6, and God said, let there be an expanse, a space between the waters to separate water from water. Verse 7, so God made the expanse, the raquia, and separated the water under the expanse from the water above it, and it was so. And God called the expanse sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. Now, some believe the earth was covered with dense moisture uh, or surrounded by dense moisture that produced a dome of water around the earth, and therefore the word for expanse is simply a picture of God lifting the moisture and forming the sky. 
The sky is not a hard dome, as some ancient peoples thought, but as we look up, uh, there's an atmosphere that stretches out over 100 miles. It thins out until it merges with the emptiness of space and stretches around the earth, of course. The air in this expanse protects us from the rays of the sun and provides a place for the birds to fly and the clouds to carry water that bring rain and snow. And it also is a place for modern air travel and satellites to help us know where we're going. More about that later. This atmosphere preserves the warmth of the earth and equalizes the temperature, making life possible. Now, this all happened when God stretched out the amazing blanket of air called the atmosphere or the expanse that distinguishes the surface waters of the earth from the atmospheric waters or from clouds. And we call the expanse sky. Now, this is almost an aside here, but I like it. In Daniel, the stars are described as the brightness of the expanse. So on the screen, in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, it reads, those who are wise, I'm using this for a purpose, wise, wise. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, or you could read it, the brightness of the expanse. And those who lead many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Now, I'm doing this on purpose. I want to draw your attention to Proverbs chapter 8, which is a description of the most needed character trait absent in the world today, and that character trait is the word wisdom, which is part of the creation, right at the beginning. And so if you read all of Proverbs 8, you're reading about wisdom, and it personifies wisdom. So in Proverbs 8, verse 22 and 23, it reads this way. It says, wisdom is speaking to us. The Lord brought me forth, wisdom, as the first of his works, before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. Now, the whole of Proverbs 8 pictures Genesis and is named wisdom. So need it today. When we forget God, we lose wisdom. We lose all wisdom. And that's kind of obvious today, isn't it? So the expanse or sky above us is where the sun and the moon and the stars are placed by God and also the place where birds fly. At first, we have light instead of darkness, And now we have air as opposed to dense moisture over the whole planet. The clouds would control the moisture so that the earth could be watered and the plants could grow. The description was very important to the first readers of Genesis. Moses wrote Genesis. The Sumerian religion believed that the gods, or the small g, inhabited the heavens. Anu was the sky god and Enlil, the god of the atmosphere. And they were the gods that controlled the kings of the earth. The god Baal was identified as the rider of the clouds in that religion. Baal was the god of storm and rain. But Proverbs 68.4 tells us, Sing to God, Elohim, sing praise to his name, extols him who rides on the clouds. His name is the Lord and rejoice before him. 
So the message of Genesis is that what you see in the expanse, the sky, was created by God and not to be worshipped, but to be enjoyed as pictures of God's glory. And by the way, that's part of Paul's argument in chapter 1 of the uh, of, of, of Romans, <laughs> chapter 1 of Romans. And in chapter 1, verse 20, the New Living Translation puts it this way, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. There's no excuse for not knowing God, none. Uh, Psalms 19.1, I'll quote it a number of times. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Uh, anybody, even with the weakest of thinking, I mean, where did all this come from? If you don't believe in God, wake up with me early in the morning and look at the moon. I love to look at the moon in the early morning. I always know where it is all year long. Who put that there? God did. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Now look at verse 9. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was, what's the word? Good, good. So this is a straightforward account, unlike the prevailing myths of Moses' day, where the sea was a god and had to be controlled. The pagan superstitions believed that their gods ensured fertility of the soil or plants, and uh, 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 so they would grow. Here, the followers of Moses would learn that creator God controlled the boundaries of the seas and God caused everything to grow by his creative decree. You know, ultimately coming to know really who God is and facing God in his reality is what shakes us up and brings us back online. That happened to Job. In Job chapter 38, God is sort of getting on his case, so to speak. Yeah, I can imagine Job saying, why are all these bad things happening to me? Everything's going wrong for me. You know, where's God? Why is God allowing all this? So God says to Job, who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garments and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud ways halt. You know, when you read this part of Job, Job's basically saying, I'm God and I know what I'm doing and you don't, and so just pay attention to me. The application of Job's circumstance was that God is in charge. We are not at the mercy of unpredictable gods like the religions of the day thought when Moses wrote this or a purposeless circumstance. God is in charge. God works all things out for our good and none of us are able to change God's plan. Creator God who put the sea in its place and arranged for the seasons that would produce the food we eat, he will not let us down. Because of Creator God's 
creation, we are safe in God's loving arms. Again, to go back to Romans chapter 8 in the Message Bible, verse 31, 32, it reads this way. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? I mean, what are you worried about? Well, I have to look in the mirror and ask me that often. <laughs> now, I do want to say this, though, I, I, that when God called Moses, I think this is important to think about, when God called Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh to let my people go, God said he had heard the cries of his people and was responding to their prayers. Now, there's a prayer from time to time that seems to surface among Christians. You used to hear it all the time. Most of you, if you've been a Christian for long, you've just memorized it because you've heard it so often. Now, I, think, I think we should be praying this prayer to our God who created this world and promised to never visit us with a flood again, Noah's days, but who also promised the return of his son, Jesus. Might it be he's waiting for us to uh, say the words and mean them of Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people, now he's talking about the Jewish people, but it's not just the Jewish people. We're his people too. We didn't replace the Jews. We, were, we benefited from their faith, and now we are God's people also. And so if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then, just like happened with Moses at the burning bush, I will hear from heaven and I'll forgive their sins, and will heal their land. That's an amazing promise. And it's been fulfilled, if you read through the Old Testament, over and over again. But even if you think of world history, it's been fulfilled over and over again. You think of the history of Israel, which I see on TV all the time lately, and so far everything I've seen has been absolutely accurate. It's clear, it, it is clear, if you know the Scriptures, that God is in charge. And all that is happening, as horrible and terrible as it is, uh, all that is happening is going through the hand of God. And in the end, God's going to more than win. Now look at verse 11, Genesis. Then God said, Let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it, according to their various kinds. I just think that's good. So if you plant apple seeds, you won't get an orange tree. That's the idea. And it was so. Verse 12, the land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed, again, according to their kinds. And trees bearing fruit was seeded in according to their kinds. So plant the uh, seed, uh, uh, a little bigger than most seeds of a plum, and you will not have a fig tree grow up. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, for the first time, the earth produces vegetation. This is in preparation for the survival of the animals and us humans. 
The vegetation comes out of the created ground, which God created to be productive. The pagan religions of the day had various ceremonies to convince the gods to produce crops. But in verse 14, it says, And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky. God made the sky, and now when he placed the sun and the moon in the sky, they could be seen. Some believe they were already created, and God now made them visible. But the wording denies that. It says, let there be, says God. Let there be, says God, who created the sun and the moon at this time. And he created it to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years and let them be lights in the expanse of the sky, verse 15, to give light on the earth. And it was so, verse 16, God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the sun, and the lesser light to govern the night, the moon. And then it's almost like, it's, it's almost like if Mo, Moses is writing this, if he took a, a breath and he, he says, he also made the stars. It's sort of overwhelming all of this is happening. And then it goes on to say in verse 17, God set them, the stars, in the expanse of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and the night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was what? Good. Verse 19, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. Boy, he's taking a long time to do all this. <laughs> These heavenly bodies are to regulate time, days, seasons, and years. They are the reason we have a calendar we can depend upon. The stars and the planets were to declare the glory of God. Again, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands. The pagan culture saw the stars and the moon, the sun and the planets as signs that were to control their lives. The Babylonians had astrological charts. The Egyptians had the sun god, Ray, and the moon god, Atom. The last time I taught this, I said that the Israelites were to obtain their direction from God and not the stars. But in fact, the stars can be used for literal direction by those at sea. But now we have invented Apple Play and Waze and Google and Valerie, so I no longer need the stars for direction. <laughs> now, this may seem trivial, but I think it is great that God, our creator, who created the stars, made us so we can be creators also. We create satellites that keep track of our paths on the earth so that at the beginning of every bike ride that I go on, I hit a little thing on my computer on the front of the bike, and it tells a whole bunch of people that I'm out on my bike. And one of them is one of our missionaries over in the Himalayan mountains because he always sends me something. Or so I saw he went for a bike ride today. And, uh, and it says, satellite, uh, accept it. And then so I can go for a bike ride. And, uh, and at the end of each ride, I can look online and see where I traveled for the last two or three hours, the speed I went which is sometimes pretty disappointing, and all of that type of thing. It's amazing what we have been able to do because of God. On the other hand, we can open newspapers 
or Google horoscope and be told about our sign and our temperament and our future. Many people live their lives by reading these things every day. And I assume, I assume that no one here does that. This is very dangerous. Satan can use these meaningless fortunes to control our lives. Uh, this is why the creation account in our Bible is so important. Our lives are not controlled by our temperaments or our horoscopes or our star signs. Our lives are controlled by God. Now, let's investigate that a little bit. Deuteronomy chapter 4. This is also from Moses. A few verses. Do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol. God speaking through this, what Moses is writing. Do not become corrupt and make for yourselves an idol, an image of any shape, whether formed like a man or a woman. Or like any animal on earth or any bird that flies in the air or like any creature that moves along the ground or any fish in the waters below. And when you look up to the sky and see the sun, the moon and the stars, all the heavenly array, do not be enticed into bowing down to them and worshiping things the Lord your God has apportioned to all the nations under heaven. But as, as for you, the Lord took you and brought you, he's talking to God's people, out of the iron-smelting furnace out of Egypt to be the people of his inheritance as you now are. And it's not a stretch at all for us to say that that pictures us too. He took us away from the slavery of our sinfulness to the freedom of his Holy Spirit. And it's God that has done that. Paul and Barnabas uh, healed a man lame from birth. He had never walked. Uh, the people were so amazed, they called Paul and Barnabas gods and tried to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul told them to stop. And in Acts chapter 14, he says, turn from these worthless things, because they were idol worshipers, to the living God. And here he enters into the creation account, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons, and he provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. We are to only worship creator God who made everything good and for our benefit, who made us in his image so we could understand his plan and purpose for our lives. Now look at verse 20. And God said... Let the water teem with living creatures. Uh, the word creatures is the important word here. It's pronounced tanum, and you'll understand it in a minute. Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great tanum, creatures of the sea. Now, this word for creatures is important. important. It's an important word in the literature of the Old Testament biblical times. The word describes sea monsters or Leviathan. It's a word that can be translated snakes or even dragons. So here God moves Moses to put this word in with the many small created things in the sea as if the tannin is nothing to be concerned about, which it isn't, as it is a creation of creator God not to be feared and not to be worshipped. And then he goes on, uh, verse, back up to verse 21 again. So God created the great 
creatures of the sea and every, every living thing, moving thing, with which the water teems according to their kinds. You see, fish don't become dogs. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water and the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And then verse 23 says, And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. Now, this is the first recorded blessing in the Bible. Verse 22, God bless them. The word for blessing appears more times in Genesis than any other Old Testament book. The word for blessed is barach. It's a word for giving a gift. Within the meaning of the word is the idea of ability. So God blessed the fish and the birds with the barach, the ability to multiply, which in itself is a great blessing. The ability to produce life only comes from God. This becomes even more significant when we learn about the crown of creation. That's us. Verse 24. And God says, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. Giraffes don't become elephants. And it was so. And God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And then God said, let us, notice the plural here, God speaking, within the Trinity, triunity of God, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, and let them, mankind, rule over the fish of the sea and all the birds of the air, over the livestock and over all the earth and over all the creatures that move along the ground, that move along the ground. I have a friend in Sedona, Arizona by the name of Paul Wallace, and uh, he's got a way with words. We're going to end with a quote of his that it will thrill you. Uh, and yes, he knows I'm quoting him. And uh, he has a church called Wayside Chapel in Sedona, Arizona. If you ever go to Sedona, you've got to go to his church. He's such a kind, wonderful man, very experienced. His wife's from Japan and his wonderful kids. He, he uh, ministered in Japan and got married to a Japanese uh, girl who really loves the Lord. At any rate, he, he writes this. Every family of living things reproduces after its kind. You'll never get a cat that mutates into a dog or a frog that mutates into a snake. You can give it all the time you like. Every species reproduces after its kind just as God designed it. Now, you can hybridize. But the hybrid is sterile, and the mutation is always inferior. God made it the way it would function best. Science is now discovering that adaptation within species is from already existing genes, not mutations. In other words, God had it all figured out from the beginning, and you can't improve on what he did. 
Now look at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created us. Male and female, he created us. So now we can see why the constant refrain of according to their kind is so numerous. We are set apart from the rest of creation. Mankind is not just created according to his kind, but men and women were made in God's image. So we're not just a body, just a soul, just a spirit. We are one body, soul, and spirit. A unity like God who is Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are created in the image of God, male and female, not animals or fish or birds. We have been given dominion in God's good creation. And notice that mankind did not evolve from any of the animals. They were created first and for mankind, for mankind, but mankind did not come from them. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, it says, The Lord God formed the man, that was Adam, from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man, Adam, became a living being. So man was made from the dust of the ground. He was given life from the breath of God. And mankind did not gradually develop breathing and thinking faculties. Also notice in verse 26, a very important small detail with large implications. So verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness. Now, this is not an impersonal third-person statement. God didn't say, let there be man. No, God said, let us, let us. First person, personal statement, a picture of the set apartness, apartness or the holiness of mankind. Uh, holiness, we're set apart for God's purposes, made by God to be related to God, intimate with God, instructed by God in the image of God. God is not a man. He is spirit. And we share in his image. We cannot replicate God's image perfectly, but we can be godly, Christ-like. We have intelligence and creativity and compassion and the ability to love and be faithful and have wisdom. We are able to experience joy and understand justice. Without God, there are no absolutes. So to say something is evil or good in our society today may mean nothing more than I like red and you like blue. Albert Moeller in his morning uh, uh, briefing, which you really should listen to, uh, agreed with our president when he said just a couple of, just yesterday, uh, that Hamas, what Hamas did in Israel these past days, he used these words, is unmitigated evil. That's what the president said. And I agree, that is true. But to define evil, there must be an ultimate definer. We are not that definer. God is. This is why Genesis is so important and why there is so much controversy over the creation account. Because God is triunity and communicates within the Godhead, the Trinity, we are able also to communicate with God and with one another and even talk to ourselves. I like Psalm 8. This is just one of the best psalms. The New Living reads this way. When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them? Human beings that you should care for me? 
Yet you made me only a little lower than God and crowned me with glory and honor, and you gave me charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority. That's an amazing psalm, inspired by the Spirit of God for us to understand who we are. Now look at verse 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. God's blessing is significant here. God blessed the living creatures on the fifth day day. Here God blesses mankind. The blessing includes posterity. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth. So God's talking about having children. This is a theme through the rest of the book of Genesis, man's seed. Children become extremely important in the history of salvation. We have, uh, here we have a picture of God's wishes and our will. The imperative statements by God to be fruitful are not to be taken as absolute commands. The grammar is controlled by the phrase, God blessed them. So this blessing is not a command, but a permission without limits. We are able to have as many children as we desire, but we're not bad people if we have no children. God has given us the task and an ability and made clear his desire, now it becomes our blessing and privilege to cooperate with God's plan. One of the consequences of ignoring the blessing to be fruitful, meaning to have children, is that in our self-centered Western cultures, even authentic Christians are making the choice to not have children when they're able to have them for selfish reasons. Not always. There's sometimes reasons why we can't. Uh, children are God's method of populating his creation, but also God's method of proclaiming his word. I, I couldn't help but think about this of all that I've been watching on TV, but when I was in Bethlehem, and I'm communicating with someone in Bethlehem regularly these days, uh, when I was in Bethlehem many, many years ago, I was having this wonderful discussion with a guy in a store where I had bought something, and uh, and we were talking, he's a Christian, and we were talking about Muslims. And at that point in time, the Christians outnumbered the Muslims in that area. And, uh, and he looked at me, he says, but that's going to end soon. And I asked him, like, why do you say that? The Muslims are having all kinds of kids, and the Christians are having very few. And today, by the way, the Muslims vastly outnumber. You see... Every time we have a baby dedication, what do I say? I always say God's not finished with us. Yes, after I quote Deuteronomy. Children are the best training ground to produce maturity and humility as we grow older. I am told that in America today, most married couples have more pets than children. Dr. Albert Moeller in his briefing talks about this problem often. Our birth rate as a country is no longer in a growth phase because of more people dying than being born in each generation. This has already caused havoc in Canada and Japan, especially in Japan, China and Russia and many other countries. But I see this as an opportunity and our church is, is contributing greatly. 
the less children born into secular families compared to the number of Christian families, think about this, could cause revival in one generation if the Lord doesn't come. So the church should be teaching young men how to become a family, live a godly life, get married, have children, disciple their children to grow in the faith and impact the world for Jesus. Uh, Valerie and I were talking about this in the car coming here, and I mentioned to her, I said, I'm actually going to, it was just a spontaneous conversation. I said, there's a one word that I'm going to use that I've never used in a sermon before. It's Moeller uses it all the time, and it's all over the media. And so the word is adulting. And what Moeller says in his uh, version of talking about adulting, that uh, especially young men aren't growing up anymore. Oh, they're growing up. They're getting older, but they're not growing up. They don't have any goals. They don't have any uh, dreams. They don't, uh, they, they don't learn to be the people that God has made them to be, that made us to be. We need, to, we need our younger people to be adulting. <laughs> now, verse 29. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Verse 30. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the air and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening... And there was morning, the sixth day. And then chapter 2, verse 1, last verse. Thus, the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Now, I want to stop here in our exposition so we can end thinking about how great the creation, the creator really is. And I've already mentioned my friend at uh, Westside Chapel, Pastor Paul Wallace, and he has almost poetic ability with words. And I've quoted him in the past many times in different things, and I've used this before. Listen to this. Order and fullness. We have so much to see and enjoy. Now, I've been, Valerie and I have been there many times, so I can visualize some of this. I watch the blue heron fly up the canyon in the morning and down in the evening. I see the ducks and geese in their seasonal comings and goings, the little hummers on their summer vacations like bees around my mom's feeders. I see a gray fox stalking my cat while the chipmunk tried to avoid the cat. I've seen the mountain lion in the path waiting for a fawn and the rattler waiting for a passing mouse, the bear eating blackberries and manzanita berries and stealing my peaches. These black oaks <clears throat> in our canyon drop their leaves in spring and immediately grow them out again. But before that, the beautiful Arizona sycamore with their naked, writhing white branches catch my eye in winter as they wait to hide in the snow. I've swum over the backs of whale sharks five times my size, and yet they live on tiny plankton. I've swirled the phosphorescent plankton while diving in at night and marveled at it turning its light on and off like a firefly and watched the octopus at night transform its color to whatever background it happened to crawl across. And even as I write this, red rock cliffs are illuminated by rays of sunshine while black thunderclouds form the backdrop bringing the much-needed rain. 
I see it as good. He does all things well. Uh, th that just moves me uh, to, to read that. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. We are made in the image of God. The image was marred in Genesis chapter 3. Adam was responsible for, for the image being marred. In the New Testament, Jesus is called the new Adam in whom the image can be restored. And the reason we are unable to fill our sense of emptiness with material things or power or personal achievement or athletic attainment, the reason neither fame nor fortune satisfies is that we are missing the joy of the imagodia. But when we become Christians, we are recreated. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. Let's stand and worship. Father, I just thank you for your creation. I thank you for what you did in, in just a few days and what you've been doing now for a few thousand years, and what you're going to do forever in the future. And Father, I do pray for the peace of Israel and for all of the terrible things that are going on, and I pray that it comes to an end that Israel can have even more of their land, and that you will set it all up so that Jesus will come, will take us out of here, Israel will become the evangelists of the world, and then when Jesus returns, we'll have the new heavens and the new earth. We will have what we can't even truly imagine, but we will be just so joyful that we're face-to-face -face of Jesus and totally made new in Jesus' name.